Section 30. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 30. Chapter 5. Concluded. The Military Aspect of the Revolution. I have said that many reasons are given to account for the disaster of Tricoring, one of the very few in which a British force has been routed upon the continent. But I confess that if I were asked for an explanation of my own, I would say that it was simply due to the gross lack of synchrony on the part of the Allies, and that this in its turn was taken advantage of by the power both of vigil and of marching, which the French troops, still inferior in most military characteristics, had developed and maintained, and which, a more important matter, their commanders knew how to use. This heavy blow, delivered on the 18th of May, in spite of a successful rally a week later, finally convinced the Emperor that the march on Paris was impossible. Eleven days later, on the 29th, it was announced in the camp of Tournay, upon which the Allied army had fallen back, that the Emperor had determined to return to Vienna. The Allied army was indeed still left upon that front, but the French continued to pour up against it. It was again their numbers that brought about the next and final victory. Far off upon the east of that same line, the army which is famous in history and in song, as that of the Sambre at Meuse, was violently attempting to cross the Sambre and to turn the line of the Allies. Coburg reinforced his right opposite the French left, but numbers had begun to bewilder him. The enthusiasm of St. Just, the science of Carnot, decided victory at this eastern end of the line. Six times the passage of the Sambre had failed. Reinforcements continued to reach the army, and the seventh attempt succeeded. Charleroi, which is the main fortress, blocking the passage of the Sambre at this place, could be and was invested when once the river was crossed by the French. It capitulated in a week, but the evacuation of Charleroi was but just accomplished when Coburg, 70,000 strong, appeared in relief of the city. The plateau above the town where the great struggle was decided is known as that of Fleurus, and it was upon the 26th of June that the armies were there engaged. Never before had forces so equal permitted the French any success. It had hitherto been the ceaseless requisitioning of men to supply their insufficient training and command, which had accomplished the salvation of the country. At Fleurus, though, there was still some advantage on the French side. The numbers were more nearly equal. The action was not determined for ten hours, and on the French centre and left was nearly lost. When the reserves and Marceau's obstinacy in front of Fleurus village itself at last decided it. The consequences of the victory were final. As the French right advanced from Fleurus, the French left advanced from Ypres, and the center became untenable for the Allies. The four French fortresses which the enemy still garrisoned in that Belgian belt of which I have spoken were invested and recaptured. 
by the 10th of July the French were in Brussels, the English were beaten back upon Holland, the Austrians retreating upon the Rhine, and the continuous success of the revolutionary armies was assured. While these things were proceeding upon land, however, there had appeared a factor in the war which modern desire for comfort and above all for commercial security has greatly exaggerated, but which the student will do well to note in its due proportion. This factor was the military weakness of France at sea. In mere numbers, the struggle was entered upon with fleets in the ratio of about two to one, while to the fleet of Great Britain, already twice as large as its opponent, must be added the fleets of the Allies. But numbers did not then, nor will they in the future, really decide the issue of maritime war. It was the supremacy of English gunnery which turned the scale. This triumphant superiority was proved in the Battle of the 1st of June, 1794. The English fleet under Lord Howe attacked the French fleet, which was waiting to escort a convoy of grain into Brest. The forces came in contact upon the 28th of May, and the action was a running one of three days. Two examples must suffice to prove how determining was the superiority of the British fire. The Queen Charlotte, in the final action, found herself caught between the Montaigne and the Jacobin. We have the figures of the losses during the duel of these two flagships. The Queen Charlotte lost 42 men in the short and furious exchange. The Montaigne alone 300. Again, consider the total figures. The number of the crews on both sides was nearly equal, but their losses were as 11 to 5. It cannot be too often repeated that the initial advantage which the English fleet gained in the Great War, which it maintained and increased as that war proceeded, and which it made absolute at Trafalgar, was an advantage mainly due to the guns. The reader must not expect in a sketch which ends with the fall of Robespierre any treatise, however short, upon the effect of sea power in the Revolutionary Wars. It has of late years been grossly exaggerated. The reaction which will follow this exaggeration may as grossly belittle it. It prevented the invasion of England. It permitted the exasperation and wearing out of the French forces in the peninsula. But it could not have determined the fate of Napoleon. That was determined by his Russian miscalculation and by his subsequent and consequent defeat at Leipzig. Upon the early success of the revolution and the resulting establishment of European democracy, with which alone these pages deal, sea power was of no considerable effect. The end of section 30. The end of chapter 5.